You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 220.1, and if you've been listening for a while, or since September for that matter, you'll know that the decimal point means that we don't have one of our hosts. David Grubbs uh, has a nasty cold and has lost his voice to some extent, so he won't be joining us. You'll also hear once Michael jumps in that his audio is a bit scratchy. It's because while David has a rhinovirus... Michael has a compromised hard drive, so we are recording with backup equipment. So, uh, you know, I guess it'll kind of sound, you know, 90s and grungy. Is that fair enough, Michael? Well, I'm recording straight into the computer now. So while you're hearing me grungy over speakerphone, they should be hearing me as good as I ever sound. Well, I'm largely stuck in the early 90s, so I mean, grungy, I, I, can, I can live with. So we'll keep on going, all right? Uh, we're going to do a listener feedback episode today. Uh, we have a backlog of emails stretching back into early 2017, and we do want to talk to you all because that way you might actually keep writing into us. So first of all, I apologize it's been so long since we've addressed your emails, and second of all, we're going to just jump right in and uh, talk about the first one. So this first one is from Josh Majeski. He writes thus, Hello Christian Humanist Podcast. I hope to write a more extensive feedback email in the future, but I have since October, been working through your archives from the beginning, and I'm in the 170s for now. But I wanted to say that I love your podcast, hate how it has inspired me to go out and buy too many books, and suggest a topic, fraternities and sororities. I am an alumnus of a fraternity in North Dakota where Greek life is probably different from some campuses you've worked at or studied on, and I would love to hear what you have to say about them, good, bad, and ugly. Thanks for all you do, Josh Majeski. Uh, Michael, I mean, do you think we could talk about fraternities for an hour? Probably not. I have next to no experience with them. I, uh, they had them at the University of Georgia. I taught some students who were in them, but I have no personal experience and not that much secondhand experience. How about you? Well, I mean, my big story, uh, would probably be the times that in a, that in freshman comp classes there at UGA, people tried to write, uh, essays about you know the inherent goods of fraternities and were able to were unable pardon me to name any but secondary goods uh so it made for an interesting philosophical experiment but i think i might have just now exhausted what i could say about them so uh there you go josh that was your episode (laughs) sorry um yeah sorry josh i mean if david comes back on and says no guys you're just not thinking about this right then uh certainly we can revisit uh but Michael, who else has written in to us? We have an email here from Jasper. I think it's pronounced Diekman. I don't know. Um, he's writing about the Dungeons & Dragons episode. 
He says that as a theology student and newish Pathfinder player, I was struck by the affinity of it with rabbinic Judaism, so I went on the internet and lo, he's quoting here from an article from Tablet, the first thing you need to know about D&D is that it takes place entirely in your head. It's not a computer game, there's no board, no visuals, only a manual, a few chewed up pencils, and stacks of papers on which to record your statistical progress. Everything you do, from attacks on monsters to attempts at magic spells, is determined by the aforementioned dice. It's hopelessly procedural, deeply detailed, wonderfully abstract, and decidedly conducive to argumentation. It is, in other words, a wholly Jewish experience. You know what that makes me think of is baseball. I wonder, did we talk uh, during Dungeons & Dragons about uh, its similarities to, I, I don't know how you would put it, baseball scorekeeping? No, I don't think we ever went there. I mean, I, I know we mentioned uh, Jewish American novels in our baseball episode, and we mentioned baseball in our Jewish American novels episode, but I don't know that we ever connected either of them to Dungeons & Dragons, but that, that makes sense. The way Jasper describes it here, or the way his article, uh, which we'll, we'll post in the show notes, the way it describes it, that's what it, it makes me think of that. We've talked about it several times, the Robert Coover book, The Universal Baseball Association, about the guy who plays essentially one-man Dungeons & Dragons baseball. Right, Stratomatic Baseball. My dad used to have that game. Well, very good. Uh, moving on from Jasper to Russell. Uh, Russell writes thus, Hey guys, I just wanted to shoot you guys an email thanking you for your podcast. Most of the episodes cover most of my interest in theology and philosophy, and the insight is wonderful. I live in Long Beach, California, and my parents live in the Bay Area, so when I visit, I can usually knock out a bunch of your work on my rides up and down. I just listened to the abortion episode, which, Michael, I think that was a City of Man episode, wasn't it? Yeah, well, we've certainly never done an episode on abortion, so I think it, I think it is City of I, Man. I, I, I didn't remember doing one, so when I read this email, I was a bit panicked and wondering what I'd said, but I'm pretty sure that was Ed and Coyle, but I'll read the email anyway. I was impressed, as always, and you guys said you might need a conservative voice, one who had voted Trump and still stands by it. I was going to suggest a man named uh, Bill, I'm going to guess it's Valicella. He is a Catholic, although he might not admit that, and a staunch conservative. I personally do not identify with either party, left or right, but his insight into the political right is always rigorous and sometimes hard to see where he goes wrong logically. His blog is this, ah, let's see here. His blog uh, is a wonderful resource for metaphysics as well, and he gives a link to it. Uh, he goes on to say, I am a Biola graduate and studied philosophy under Tom Crisp there albeit not doing philosophy academic anymore, and was under his spell while I was a student. His recent work might be of deep interest for your podcast. He switched his heavy emphasis from doing metaphysics, philo philosophy of time, uh, to theological ethics. His work is mostly on violence, enemy love, and political theology. All of these things, as you both would agree, are very relevant to America's current political situation. I was hoping you could get him on the show. I usually see him every two weeks or so, so I'll mention something. And he gives a link to some of his work. Uh, you know, Russell, I mean, uh, you know, I'll, I'll see if he's got, you know, any recent publications that are interesting. I mean, he might be an interesting one to have on profiles. He might actually be an interesting one for someone like Coyle Neal to interview on profiles. I don't know. Uh, anything else you would add to that, Michael? Nope. All right, then. We're moving right along. Here's an email from Rebecca Nelson. 
She says she just finished listening to the Robin Hood podcast, and it took her back to a project she did for a film studies class. She did a compare-contrast using the same three films, but she had to throw in the crossing the river scenes from Robin Hood Men in Tights just for fun. That is a funny scene in Men in Tights. And that is a fun scene, yeah. <laughs> Quite the project for a non-AV person using VCR tapes, two TVs, and without any teenagers to give me technical support. Anyway, about a remake... I agree that Robin Hood has to be mythic. A cartoon would be cool, but for a real person movie, I think Robin should be youngish, beautiful, and heroic, preferably British. So how about Benedict Cumberbatch as Robin, Martin Freeman as Friar Tuck, Daniel Craig as Prince John, John Sim as the sheriff? Uh, I, I know who three of those people are, but I don't know who John Sim is. Do you? No, and I didn't get a chance to look him up on IMDb before the episode, so I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. And if you could throw in any of the Gleasons, father and son, preferably both, that would be awesome. I assume Brendan Gleason, who's his son? I have no idea. I uh, Listeners, just some background. I mean, we found out that David was incapacitated right before I went off to teach class. So I am looking at these emails, not for the first time, but for the first time in a few months. Yeah, so apologize. <laughs> Uh, no real ideas for Marion, but Olivia Coleman, who I, whom I also don't know, would be an awesome lady cluck. I'm very bad, apparently, at British actors. Uh, fun episode. Love me some Robin Hood. And by the way, I would love to hear a discussion about Eleanor, Richard, John, and that whole family saga. Huh. That might, yeah, that might be an interesting one. I mean, I either I would have to spearhead that one so that I could pitch a lot of the questions to Grubbs, or I guess, Michael, you could pitch questions to the two of us. That would make um, the most sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, although sometimes, I mean, kind of our uh, our middle guy, not the one who knows nothing and not the one that knows everything, is a better question asker because then at least we know what questions to pose. Because, I mean, I, I remember when we did that uh, Jewish American novel episode with you and Danny, uh, I, I really did feel like as I was going, I, I don't even know if I'm asking questions that are interesting in the field. Would you have preferred? But, would you have preferred that one of us ask you professional questions about the Jewish American novel? No, no. I'm not saying I have a better idea. I'm just saying it has its drawbacks. Because <laughs> okay, the the idea of the idea of answering questions about the British monarchy fills me with, well, something between fear and disgust. <laughs> That's fair enough. Uh, well, Michael, this next email we were talking about during pregame, so. Uh, I am interested to hear uh, what you have to say about it. Uh, this is from Jordan. I don't believe you can mix theology with an approach of understanding metamodernism. I believe you guys have missed the mark simply because you are looking at metamodernism from a biblical theological viewpoint versus a ubiquitous worldview. Therefore, until you abandon the foundations of theology, you as an individual will never grasp the idea of metamodernism. Christianity is one side of the oscillation of metamodernism, not the central point to discover the validity of the movement. I'm disappointed in the coverage and the critique made of meta about metamodernism on your podcast. I think you guys missed the mark because of a biased viewpoint. Well, Michael, don't you feel bad now? Yeah, I'm not sure where he's getting this thing that Christianity is on one side of the metamodernism. Certainly, that is that point is not made in the, the materials we read. I, you could make it, but to act like it's foundational to, to the movement is nonsense. I mean, I hate to critique our listeners this much, but that's just that's not what Vermeulen and Vandenacker say uh, in Notes from Metam on Metamodernism, at any rate. 
I am also curious. Right. I'm also curious about his rejection of what we say because we come from a biblical, theological viewpoint versus a ubiquitous worldview. I'm not sure what that ubiquitous worldview means, but it would seem to me that metamodernism would at least occasionally be against that. You know, that's that's the sort of that's the sort of modernist language that postmodernism is inclined to distrust, and metamodernism is inclined to trust only occasionally. Well, yeah, I mean, ubiquitous worldview, I mean, is pretty close to what I would define as a, a meta-narrative, which, yeah. of course, is, you know, what uh, Francois Lyotard, you know, asserts as, you know, the the great object of postmodern suspicion. So, uh, at any rate, Jordan, uh, and I, I should add that we don't know whether Jordan is a man or a woman, because that name can go either way. I've taught men and women named Jordan. Uh, but thank you for writing in, but... Uh, I'm going to disagree that a ubiquitous worldview is what metamodernism seems to be about. Uh, Michael, the next one is kind of long, so I'll trust you to guide us through this winding path. Don't think I didn't notice you gave me the long one. Guilty. As charged. Proceed, sir. This email is from... Um... Eileen or Aileen Wright, I'm never sure. <laughs> I'm never sure how that. I can't even pronounce uh, standard American names. I'm sorry, uh, Aileen. Who uh, describes herself as a Christian humanist groupie, which is nice. She says, Yeah. She's emailed before, but has been trying to refrain from emailing because she's still playing catch-up. I just finished listening to Amos on my commute home today. I have enjoyed you all from episode one, but feel that this last semester has been better than ever. I haven't been able to figure out exactly but I want to say it is more intimate or that you are more comfortable so your discussions are deeper. Anyway, I look forward to each episode and look forward to the day I can quit binge listening to your podcast and get on with the others in, this, in the Christian Humanist Network. Okay, down to the real reason I broke my silence. The day after I listened to the Bookshelves episode, I was reading Eric Maria Remarks, All Quiet on the Western Front, and I came to this section in Chapter 7. This is, as, as Nathan points out, a very long passage from it. So I think what we'll do is just put it on the um, put it on the blog rather than my trying to read it out loud. Um, she says that this just seems so powerful to me in contrast and conversation with your descriptions of your bookshelves. Uh, so if you want to know what she's talking about there, go to the website and, and read the uh, read the section. And, you know, just to give kind of a summary of the section, uh, this is, of course, All Quiet on the Western Front is the story of a German soldier in World War One. The Western Front is the, you know, the front against the British and French and eventually American forces. Uh, and this soldier is visiting home and seeing the, the books uh, in his house and basically comes away with a sense that given his experiences on the front and in the trenches, that none of this means anything anymore. Now, it's more complex than that, but uh, I, I agree with Eileen that, I mean, this is a very strong image of something that used to mean something but has stopped meaning anything. Is that is that fair enough, Michael? Yes, I think so, in, in that, in that um, a farewell to arms kind of way. Very good. So... Uh, like Michael said, I mean, you know, we will post this on the show notes so you can read this passage. Uh, I mean, the reference to the bookshelves episode, um, I, I have to think that David Grubbs was uh, chairing that one because that, that's just such a Grubbs episode. Um, is that right, Michael? I think so. If you didn't do it, I didn't do it. So it must have been Grubbs. 
Okay, very good. Very I remember, good. I remember uh, doing that know, episode. Yeah, and then, I mean, we posted uh, pictures of our bookshelves to the Facebook group, so, um, which, by the way, you should all go join. Uh, but the upshot of all of it was that, you know, as we look at, you know, our books in our office, you know, a lot of times they are the locus for conversations with students, introducing students into a world of inquiry that maybe they weren't aware of before. And, you know, we have generally very positive because living associations between our bookshelves and, you know, the lives that we lead. Whereas in this story, because of the radical break between the two, uh, you know, it's, it's much more, I won't even say nostalgic, but I mean, it's, it's a lot more absurd, I would say, you know, what used to be something that lent meaning has now stopped doing so. Sure. All right. Well, on to the next email. Uh, this one is going to come from Juliana or Juliana. I'm going to say Juliana just cause that's my best guess. Also a fairly long one, but, uh, I can rock and roll through this. She says this. Thank you so much for your podcast. I'm a new listener, currently, quote, nostalgic, close quote. I'm going to guess this is a reference to our nostalgia episode. For the world of academia and surrounded for the, for, for the time being by people who dislike discussion. I'm sorry, Juliana. Your archives, which I've been consuming like candy for about a month now, are a welcome solace for me. I recently listened to the episode about nostalgia, which I re- realized took place a while ago. So I know it won't be fresh in your memory. As usual, it was full of, it was full of food of thought for me. But I wished I was in the same with, room with you all in this conversation so I could raise my hand periodically and ask for clarification. Uh, I'll pause here before I go to the next paragraph and say that whenever we do uh, decimal point episodes, uh, I think all three of us have had that experience. So moving on. It seems to me that the malady that afflicted the Swiss soldiers and the sorrow of being turned out of the Garden of Eden, two of the examples that were raised during your discussion, are closely aligned to one another, but that they are at the root of or at the at root something different than the nostalgia that describes a longing for the good old days in such a way that glorifies the past and holds it up as something more than it was. Although the latter distinction of nostalgia perhaps springs from our experience of the fall and exile from Eden to use the same term, I would argue doesn't work. If nostalgia now means reminiscing over a false representation of the past, then the sorrow over the Garden of Eden or the illness afflicting the soldiers is closer to genuine homesickness. The difference, in my opinion at least, and I think it is a helpful distinction, is that when my grandma reminisces about the 60s, all was not as well and harmonious and glorious as she would like to think. It had its strengths and its weaknesses, just like any other time in history, with the exception of the pre-lapsarian walk in the garden. And that, I guess, is my point. While it is true that we proclaim, O happy fault that won for us so great a savior, what was in the garden was found to be very good. Adam and Eve were innocent, and they walked with God. While it is true that what we gain from the incarnation and the paschal mystery is a more profound and substantial union with God, for the time being we must learn to daily follow the Lord into death, to self, and this cuts directly against our human nature. Truly, if we mourn the loss of Eden, it is a genuine sadness. We have everything to gain, but we can still point to a real, if temporary, loss. In contrast to this, there are things that we have gained since the 60s, and there are things we have lost, and that's the way it is, as you pointed out, to hold one time or another up as a golden age without any qualification is almost always a false representation. To take another example of the soldiers, If you're still reading, and I am still reading, can't you hear me? 
It would seem at first blush that their nostalgia arises from some kind of genuine heartbrokenness if they were taken out of a place of beauty like home, mountains, culture, family, and placed in circumstances of surpassing ugliness like war, death, and inhumanity. It, this would do real violence to their minds and hearts. This is a different trauma than the nostalgia of imagining that things were perfect, even though they were never were to begin with, and now they are not. To be sure... Uh, I definitely grant that someone who finds himself homesick is likely to over-glorify home. It is a very natural human temptation, but this tendency throws an interesting light on the nature of humanity. As fallen beings who refuse to admit that we make a mess of whatever we touch, maybe we, either unconsciously or consciously, skew our memory of the past as a way of consoling ourselves, of blaming, blaming outside events pardon me, rather than ourselves. Of course, my grandma isn't to blame for everything that was gone wrong since the 60s. However, what I took away from the discussion is that if we experience this nostalgia, we are presented with a choice. We can coddle the homesickness and delude ourselves with grandiose depictions of the past, or we can take it as a sobering example of how, cumulative, how the cumulative good or bad choices of individual people can create such massive changes. Sorry to be long-winded if you were making these distinctions in the podcast and I was too dense to pick up on them then I apologize for wasting your time with them. Uh, but either way, I want you to know that I really appreciate that you record your discussions every time I listen. I'm arguing right along. Thank you for doing what you do in Christ, Juliana. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, I, I think what she's what she's saying makes a lot of sense. And, I, you know, to be totally honest, I don't remember what we said in that episode. It was at least three years ago. And um, I, I hosted that, I think, because... Um, uh, I was writing a paper about nostalgia at the time, so I think I think that's where it came from. Um, so I think I think she's right that sometimes nostalgia can be a way of refusing to take stock of changes in ourselves um, and changes in the world that we're responsible for. But I would also say that if if I didn't say this on the podcast, maybe I should have um, that nostalgia can be a way for us to take stock of ourselves. It can be a way. It can be a way for us to convince that, convince ourselves that we are in some sense the same as we always were, and and that that has real value. I think um, it is it is in recognizing the Eden we've tossed ourselves out of that we understand who we are. And so I would say that's the that's the appropriate function of nostalgia. Um, but to the degree to which you think that all you are is the being that was tossed out, that's an inappropriate usage as she's saying here. Does that make sense, or am I just prattling on? Yeah, that makes a good bit of sense. And, I mean, I would add to that that, you know, I, I guess I would distinguish between nostalgia as a weaponized political trope yes, uh, versus nostalgia as more of a shared experience uh, that leads to reflection. So, I mean, to, to give a couple examples of those two things, you know, I mean the frequently criticized uh, conservative move of saying that, you know, everything that has happened over the last, you know, let's say 60 years has been a loss. And, you know, therefore to use that to advance certain policies that have certain negative effects on certain groups of people, I would call that weaponized nostalgia, not nostalgia more generally. Uh, on the other hand, you know, for instance... Uh, when, you know, my Shihan, my karate teacher, retired a, a couple years ago, you know, between the nostalgia episode and now, 
Uh, I remembered being in the dojo with him and being taught karate and, you know, the, the good things that come with, you know, learning martial arts. And, you know, I mean, looking down at my waistline, I'm not stupid enough to think that I haven't changed uh, since I was a teenager. But I can say that, you know, I have genuinely lost something there without necessarily adding that nothing good has come at the same time. Uh, so, I mean, I, I would distinguish between nostalgia as a moment for reflection and nostalgia as a political ploy. Does, does that distinction make any sense, Michael? It does, and I would add to it a distinction that Fred Davis makes in his book Yearning for Yesterday. I think that's where this comes from. The distinction between nostalgia and uh, antiquarian feeling. So if you and I, for example, found ourselves quote-unquote nostalgic for the 1950s, as I sometimes do, I have to admit, um, that is not nostalgia because that's not your experience. You you have no experience of the 1950s. Instead, it's just a far-off land you would enjoy living in the way a person imagines they would enjoy living in the Middle Ages, for example. That's not nostalgia. That's just antiquarian feeling and is, is probably even more suspect than nostalgia. And so I think the, the Make America yeah, Great Again stuff... The Make America Great Again stuff is not um, fundamentally nostalgic. It's fundamentally antiquarian. Okay, that's you're, fair enough. You're that's not enough. you're not you're not engaging with an actual world. You're engaging with a world of your imagination. Okay, all right. Well, Michael, uh, the next email you've got. This is from your brother Ryan. Yes, it is. Dear Doctors Jesus, would you consider doing an episode on the concept of authorship? I've been thinking about it in regards to working in film and television. On at least three occasions, someone has asked me about a joke in regards to where it came from, and I didn't write it. Even though my name is written by on the feature film The Outdoorsman, Another gent is listed as directed by, and another gent, in this case the actor, came up with the line in question. This reminds me of issues or non-issues in the history of authorship. Or you could do one on the Bible code. It predicted 9-11. Wake up, sheeple, Ryan Gilmore. All right. So first of all, the doctor is Jesus. Uh, this is Ryan. one of Ryan's names for me when we all visit for Christmas is Dr. Jesus over there. Uh, so that's the uh, doctor's Jesus bit. Uh, you know, the authorship episode, I mean, he's been asking me about this for a while. Uh, I think this would be a worthwhile episode. I just keep forgetting to start doing the research to come up with a decent episode on it. Uh, so Ryan, there will be an authorship episode at some time. Uh, I've just got to get like cracking on the research on it. Uh, Michael, I mean, have you done any work at all in this area? You know, I've taught um, Death of the Author by Roland Bart and some other some other things. It's not something I think about a lot, but you know. Like everybody else with a PhD in English, I've talked about it. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, when you get, you know, especially, you know, when you get into antiquity, into medieval art, you know, where the notion of authorship is very fluid. Yeah, actually, come to think about it, man, we could talk about as well the uh, the biblical studies phenomenon of, you know, referring to three different sections of Isaiah as possibly written by three different authors. We could probably get an episode out of that one. So, uh, you know... Terribly sorry about the fraternities thing that we talked about earlier, but this one I think we actually could get an episode out of, so there. The more abstract <laughs> it is, the more likely we'll get something out of it. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, 
let's talk to Dave for a moment. Now we're getting into fairly recent emails. Uh, Dave says this, guys, I know it has been a while since I've been in touch, but wanted to mention a couple things after listening to the Didache episode. First of all, the fasting shifted from Mondays and Thursdays to Wednesdays and Fridays. That was a shift away from the Jewish practice of Mondays and Thursdays, a growing differentiation away from the more Jewish church of the late first century towards the more Gentile one of the late second and third. I know that the transition is more complicated than my simplistic rendering, but that was happening even though the details are largely unknown and, and speculative. Secondly, secondly, pardon me, the issue of wandering prophets and guidelines put upon them, I would have thought you guys were more aware of the charismatic nature of the primitive church. The restrictions weren't put on the normal teachers, but rather those who were claiming divine inspiration or gift of prophecy in the ministries. I think the early church came up with some great guidelines and rules. The shepherd of Hermas has the same rules, especially for the issue of asking for money. If only the charismatic church today applied the same rules, and I am saying this as a charismatic Anglican, the wisdom of dissociating the supernatural gifts from any monetary considerations reduces the chances, manipulation, and abuse tremendously. Obviously, these guidelines developed in the early sub-apostolic church because of abuses. If only one of these two documents remained in our canon, how different the Christian television would be. Anyway, my two cents, Dave. Oh, man, and Dave, I this is one of those things I am always uh, reticent to go after charismatics, first of all, just because my reading in that field is very limited, uh, but then also because, you know, I'm employed by a Pentecostal college. <laughs> yeah, you Michael, got, some, you you got something to, to lose there. Yeah, yeah, I've got chips on the table. <laughs> I think he's too optimistic that I think he's too optimistic that Christian television would change if those documents were in the canon. Uh, I I see Christian television ignoring all sorts of things that are currently in the canon. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is you know the parable of uh, Lazarus and Dives, right? You know your your Christian tele your televangelists already have Moses and the prophets. Will they even listen to a man back from the dead? And that, and that's probably a terrible paraphrase of that, but that's all right. I, <laughs> um, I will say, and I mean, this goes back to our episode on the uh, grape prophet episode, uh, that a lot of folks here uh, at Emmanuel College and certainly affiliated with Emmanuel College uh, did comment on that particular event as it was happening. And I, I think, honestly, um, Dave, that they have a lot of the same concerns that you do. So it seems to me that even without the Didache, there is some sense that, you know, within the Pentecostal side of the charismatic movement anyway, uh, there are some strong concerns and, you know, even some structural safeguards against the kind of abuses that presumably that, you know, Didache was addressed to. You know about that great contain. about that great prophet episode. I, th th we haven't done an episode since the uh, online education one that I was as sure was going to get nasty feedback as the great prophet one. We didn't get any uh, that I can remember, despite our so criticizing. We're a bunch of slackers. Well, we criticized charismatics. We criticized Trump voters. I can't remember who else we criticized, but I was sure. Oh, was that's right. That's right. I was sure we were going to get 25 nasty emails about that episode. I mean, maybe people just didn't listen to it. 
That could be, I, but I, I remember that now, Michael. I mean, that was one of the first episodes where we actually worked Donald Trump into the episode itself rather than just kind of mentioning it, you know, in passing here and there. I mean, it was actually the the subject matter that we discussed. Yeah, well, you know, so, we don't we don't talk a lot about current events on this show. We, do, we never really have. Yeah, true enough, true enough. Well, one last email well, how here. How about the next one, Michael? One yeah. last email here. This is from Craig Burell, uh, and it just came in yesterday. Or, yeah, yesterday. Very good. He greatly enjoyed our recent conversation about Messian's wonderful couture. I've heard it once in concert, but only once. It is not played very often on account of its unusual combination of instruments. And this is me again. I um, I had the opportunity to see it a few years ago. Every every uh, June, Minneapolis has a all-night arts party at different locations uh, throughout the city. And at the Minnesota Orchestra, they were playing the Cateau pour le fond de temps at, at, uh, at like 2 o'clock in the morning. We didn't make it. But uh, I wish I had, because uh, that would have been cool. Anyway, uh, Craig appreciated our efforts to understand the theological significance of its apocalyptic program. This is something that is often glossed over as mildly embarrassing on commentary on the piece. It seemed that for several of you, the Couture was your first exposure to Messian. Let it not be your last. His massive Taranga Lila symphony is a singular experience, and his opera St. Francois d'Assise I consider one of the greatest pieces of religious art in any medium in the 20th century. Uh, me again. That Taranga Lila Symphony is the source of the character Lila from Futurama, whose name is Taranga Lila. Nothing? No, I, I, I never saw Futurama, so I'm sorry. Uh, Craig continues, Messian's good on a more intimate scale, too, as you know from hearing a quartet. He wrote lots of charming, with perhaps a peculiar slant on that word, piano music. The Vingt-Rigas sur l'Enfant Jésus could be a good place to start. He's also a major composer for the organ, Les Banquets Celestes. And man, I am uh, I'm having to throw a lot of French out there without practicing first, so excuse me if my accent's terrible. Uh, L'Apparition de l'Église Éternelle, our superb short pieces in Meditation sur le Mystère de la Saint-Clinite, is a good example of his numerous large-scale organ works. Finally, you should listen to what is probably his second best-known composition, a brief choral setting of O Sacrum Convivium. The exclamation part is a nice Messianian touch. You touched in your discussion in his inclusion of birdsong in his music. He did this in almost everything he wrote. Here's a blog post written by me exposing this side of his music, Messian and birdsong. Some of the links in that post are now broken, but unfortunately I haven't time tonight to repair them. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. I think some of you have children. I can also recommend a picture book that tells the story of the composition of the Cateau pour le fond du temps. It's called Music for the End of Time by Jen Bryant. It is published by Erdman's. My kids, aged three to eight, really enjoy it. Keep up the good work. It's nice to have you all back after your summer hiatus. You're going to buy that? Your kids are a little old for that book, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my daughter is eight, so I mean, you know, she might enjoy it. I might check it out, so... Um, you know, I might look into that. Uh, I, I will say that, you know, this was my first Messian and, you know, I learned to listen to it. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember if I told the story on the episode or not, but Michael told us about this in April. And then, you know, I shot him an email in July and, you know, basically put it on continuous loop in my August, in my, pardon me, in my office from, uh, you know, August all the way through September till we recorded. So, 
I, I do feel like I actually know the piece now. Uh, although, again, my classical mu music background is very, very limited. Um, Michael, I mean, you know, have, have you listened to a whole lot of the of, of Messiaen's other catalog, or is it largely the quartet that you've done? I know the quartet and something about the Celestial City is the other piece I know. I should, I should, I have heard of many of the pieces that Craig talks about, but I haven't actually heard any of them. So I should, uh, especially that Taronga Leela, I've heard that's wonderful. Okay, fair enough. Um, I also want to mention that uh, I met a few of our listeners uh, over this last weekend. I was at the Southeast Renaissance Conference at University of South Carolina, and Paul Schleifer, Michael, told told me that he usually enjoys listening to our show, uh, but that when he got into this discussion of this modernist symphony he had never heard of before, he didn't finish the episode. So fair enough. I guess we've got listeners who re who really enjoy Messian and those who don't much you know finish the episode when we start talking about it is there a uh, podcast is there more... a podcast you listen to nathan where you complete every single episode they do oh gosh um yeah but they are current events podcasts so their nature is that they don't really do obscure stuff i mean you know for instance i mean the theology podcast i listen to if i see the episode description i mean it's just not something i'm remotely interested in you know i mean if they're doing an episode on the no i'm not going to finish that because no matter what i say next i'm going to offend somebody but if it's something that i'm not interested in at all uh yeah i'll skip over it so but you know for instance on the media is pretty much events from the previous week so yeah i pretty much listen to ep every episode of that so um well, I don't listen yeah, to every anyway. I don't ever listen to every episode of anything probably, and uh, there's not a podcast that I haven't quit in the middle of at some point. So I'm not offended. We we talk about a, a wide variety of things, and if you're not interested, you're not interested. All right. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Elisha Searcy and Russ Kilgore, two other Christian humanist listeners I met at this conference. Uh, you know, I, I did not expect to go into this thing and run into podcast listeners. I just kind of expected to go in and have the kind of miserable time that I narrated when it, when I, when we did our, uh, episode on academic conferences. Uh, so I will say to those three gentlemen that, uh, you have mitigated the misery and I thank you for that. Uh, you know, if you ever do see me at a conference, uh, first of all, I, I have no idea how I got there. Uh, but you know, or if like Russ Kilgore, you hear my voice and realize you've heard it somewhere before, uh, please do come up and introduce yourself. I mean, you know, uh, we do this for our listeners and, you know, I personally enjoy meeting people out in the world. Uh, and speaking of which, Michael, uh, weren't we going to promote something? Why, yes, we're, uh, we're going to be, we've talked about this before, but we'll say it again. We'll be at the uh, Culture Criticism and the Christian Mind Conference the first week of November, which is at Dort College in Sioux Center, Iowa. I couldn't remember last time, and I still can't remember. Um, but Yes, I, it is Sioux Center, Iowa. I think you can still buy tickets for that. Uh, so, yeah. Buy, get your tickets and come. I, there's a reduced rate, I think, if you're not an academic. I'm, I'm not sure. I shouldn't make promises like that. But there will be much bigger names than us there. Wesley Hill will be there. Alyssa Wilkinson. John Wilson, late of Books and Culture. And um, there's a Derek Webb concert the Saturday night that you and I are not going to, I believe. <laughs> right, right. Not out of principle. Michael just... is. 
Yeah, Michael is going to this thing with uh, two people who don't especially enjoy rock and roll concerts, so he has to live with me and Grubs. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think, Michael. Uh, I, I believe you're right that when I registered, the rate for academics was su substantially higher than the rate for non-academics. Which, you know, now that I've had a couple weeks to be grumpy about that, I think it's probably a good idea to get some different people in there so that we can interact with some other folks. So if you're in the area or if you can get to the area around, what is it, Michael, November 2nd through 4th? Yes. Then come on out and see us. We'd be glad to meet you. Well, Michael, are there any other uh, announcements or things of that sort that we want to get to before we sign off for this brief episode? Why, yes, there are. Um, as as we did last year at the end of this month, uh, the, uh, we'll be doing cro massive a, a massive crossover event with the other podcasts on this network. And this year we are watching uh, classic universal horror movies. So I, I believe the next episode of this podcast will have neither Nathan nor I on it. It'll it'll uh, we'll both be on other shows. So let me let me think. Uh, Book of Nature is doing Frankenstein. Uh, sectarian reviews doing the Wolfman, Christian Fem of course. the Christian feminist podcast is doing Phantom of the Opera, and that's the Claude Rains nineteen forty three Phantom. Uh, uh, City of Man is doing Dracula, and this show, hosted by our missing third member, uh, is doing The Mummy, which I just watched for the first time two weeks ago, and was surprised that there is nobody chasing anybody through a pyramid in The Mummy. That is a weird quiet horror movie yes it is yes it is so listeners i hope you enjoy that crossover uh i've enjoyed prepping for dracula i'm going to be joining coil neal and dan dawson from book of nature for that one yeah i'm on i'm on wolfman <laughs> and and listeners if anyone out there is surprised that danny anderson is doing the wolfman uh please email in because i've got some real estate to sell you well, thank you all for listening. I'm sorry again we haven't gotten to First Clement yet. I suppose we'll get to it on November 2nd, right before, or what is it? No, it'll be October 31st, right before we leave for, uh, right before we leave for Dort. Um, David will be running that then, and so uh, you have that to look forward to. Yet more time to read First Clement. Uh, in the meantime... Uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Nathan Gilmore in the absent, David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>